0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Freedom Caucus podcast. Jody Heis here with you today, and we are thrilled to have you on board with us. Today is a very special day, and we're going to be talking about Religious Freedom Day. This is uh, actually, this came about from the General Assembly of Virginia back in 1786 when that state adopted Thomas Jefferson's uh, statutes for religious freedom, and ever since then this has been recognized as the day January 16th that would be designated as religious freedom day and it's fantastic to know that the White House has put out a proclamation on religious freedom and they've also put forth some religious freedom guidelines actually some reforms that are going to have some significant uh, results as it relates specifically to schools and colleges and that type of thing but how refreshing it is for us to have an occupant in the White House who understands the importance of religious freedom, the role that religious freedom has in our country, and the foundational principle without which, and this is critical, without which our country, our system, our uh, philosophy of government does not work without a firm understanding of religious liberty, religious freedom, and I'm thrilled that we have a president in the White House who understands that. Now, what I'd like to do today, first of all, let me go back and just share a little bit of my story. Some of you are familiar with it. Some of you are not. But I was actually a pastor for about 25 years, as well as conservative radio host, but primarily a pastor for 25 years, uh, plus or minus, give or take, prior to coming to Congress. And never did I dream that I would end up in Congress. But what was the redirecting uh, in my life in that regard really surrounds this whole issue of religious freedom. Uh, I actually, there were a couple of battles, both of which took on national attention and I happened to become the face of both of those battles. But one had to do with the posting of the 10 commandments in our local courthouse in Barrow County, Georgia. We, uh, in fact, our church actually put those commandments in the courthouse and the ACLU came after us. We had a huge battle over that. In fact, um, that was really the first time in my life, personally, that I was directly involved in in the political process. I'd helped a number of candidates get elected over the years and was involved in that capacity. But because I was the pastor of the church who put those commandments in the courthouse, this was the first time that I had to take a stand with our county commissioners and that it went from there but the bottom line is that ACLU lawsuit literally marched in the doors of our church. It named people in our church family because we had some county commissioners, different individuals who literally put those commandments in the courthouse. Well, for the first time in my life, my position of taking a stand was to go before the county commissioners, urging them to fight the ACLU. And I basically said to them that if you will fight I will pay for it. I'll find a way to pay for this so that the taxpayers of our county would not be burdened with this lawsuit. I would find a way to pay for it, but they had to fight the ACLU. They had to stand. Well, they ended up doing so. So bottom line, I won't go into a great deal of details, but for two years, we had that battle. After two years, the ACLU won. The Ten Commandments had to come down. It was an incredibly disappointing time in my life. But at that point, we redirected our focus to the state legislature, and then for another six years, we fought on the state level, and in 2012, I was honored finally to be in the governor's office, Governor Nathan Deal, as he signed a new law that said a nine-document historical display, which includes the Ten Commandments, is now legal in any government building in the state of Georgia. So... Those documents, including the Ten Commandments, went right back up in Barrow County. They are in the state capitol in Atlanta. They are going up all across the state in multiple uh, government buildings from courthouses to schools to you name it. Even to this day, they are going up. Uh, but that whole process kind of threw me out. Uh, that, as I said, that took on some national focus and, and I kind of became the face of that. A second battle also deals with religious liberties that focuses around the Johnson Amendment. Now, the Alliance Defending Freedom came to me, approached me and a few other pastors, and basically said, would you be willing to fight the IRS on this Johnson Amendment, which is basically an amendment that that limits what can be said from pulpits across America with threat of losing your tax-exempt status if you cross some nebulous line of politics, in your sermon, even if the topic deals with a clearly biblical issue, if it is deemed political, you can be in trouble. So uh, like abortion, like marriage, any of these type of things. So uh, again, to make a long story short, I ended up being one of 33 pastors across the country that challenged the IRS that specifically from the pulpit endorsed a candidate, urged our uh, congregants not to vote for one candidate, urge them to vote for another one based upon their issues, in my case, the issues of life and marriage. Well, after that sermon, uh, I and the other 32 sent a copy of our our sermons to the IRS along with a letter, and in the letter, I basically said, look, here's the sermon. I don't believe I've violated a law. I don't believe I've violated the Constitution. I believe your IRS code is unconstitutional, and I challenge you to come after me. Well, the IRS did nothing, and so we all got together with ADF, Alliance Defending Freedom, and we decided, let's do it again. So the second round, there were about 160 some odd churches across the country that participated. Again, no response from the IRS, and many of you know by now that movement is actually turned into an annual event, Pulpit Freedom Sunday, which generally occurs in the fall of each year, and now thousands of churches participate every year across the country. To this day, the IRS has not responded, but they use the threat So every election cycle, I used to receive threatening letters from organizations like the ACLU or Americans United for the Separation of Church and State, some of these organizations like that. And in the letters, they would say basically that you cannot, as a pastor, preach on certain issues, or you could be sued, your church could be sued, you could lose your tax-exempt status, on and on and on and on, every election cycle. Those type of letters to this day go out to churches, nonprofits, threatening them not to be involved in the political process. So one of the issues I did when I came to Congress was to try to reverse that Johnson Amendment that is in the IRS code. And without going into the history that came from LBJ back in 1954, it has never been challenged. Uh, Twice now, we have actually passed a repeal of the Johnson Amendment in the House, but never have we been able to get it through the Senate. So I say all that in a brief background of my story to let you know that this whole issue of religious liberties is near and dear to my heart. And let me tell you why. You go back to the beginning of our country, from the very foundation, and I know many of you probably had to recall portions of, George Washington's farewell address but in his address he made this statement he said of all the dispositions and habits that lead to political prosperity religion and morality are indispensable supports he went on and said that in vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these two pillars of human happiness in other words catch this George Washington basically said, you could not claim to be a patriot if you did not understand the role of religion and morality in our structure of government here in the United States. Powerful words. He said these are indispensable supports. In other words, without religion and morality, everything else we hold to in this country collapses. Now George Washington passes the baton to uh, Adams, and he is the one who says that our Constitution was written for a moral and religious people. It's totally inadequate for the government of any other. So now we 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 see this, and we could we could talk about a number of our founders who who brought this. But Washington refers to religion and morality as indispensable supports. Adam says that our Constitution itself was written for a moral and religious people, that our Constitution is totally inadequate for the government of any other. So here's the question we must ask. Why did our founders see religion and morality as so important? Why is our Constitution for a religious and moral people. Now now let me just lay this out for you and then we will we'll wrap up here and, and land this thing, but I want you to understand that this is critically important. What is our constitution? Well, basically it's a contract between you and me, people in the citizens of the United States It's a contract between us and our federal government. And basically that contract says that our federal government will have limited power over our lives, limited jurisdiction, that you and I will enjoy maximum freedom with limited government intervention. Now, our founders within that context of our Constitution said that religion and morality were indispensable to this whole setup and that our Constitution will not work. It's inadequate for any other people except a religious and moral people. Here's why they said that. The only way that you can have limited state government, federal government, is if you have people, the citizenry, who are capable of self-governing their own lives with an authentic understanding of right and wrong. And so religion and morality become essential ingredients to people living with a genuine compass in their lives of right and wrong, with the belief that one day they will give an account of their lives before God, therefore it matters how I live right now. And that moral compass, that moral and religious people is absolutely essential for a limited government structure. Let me give you an example. Let's say we have two towns, two towns, Town A, Town B. All right, let's just say that Town A is a town that basically has kicked God out of the public square. Town A has basically said you you cannot have prayer before your uh, city council meetings or whatever. Uh, You can't have prayer or Bibles in schools, basically a secular society. Now, let me ask you a question. What happens, what kind of behavior would you expect in town A? Well, there's all sorts of issues. Generally speaking, in a secular society, you're going to have issues like uh, more uh, drug abuse. You're going to have families falling apart. You're going to have uh, more crime. You're going to have all sorts of issues. Now, here's the big question. What is the response of government to Town A. Well, of necessity, government must be heavily involved in Town A because there are so many problems that need to be addressed. We have crime, and so we need more law enforcement. We have, uh, On and on and on and on. Uh, of necessity, government must be heavily involved in Town A. Now, let's jump over to Town B. Let's just suppose Town B is a town in which for the most part, people embrace a Judeo-Christian worldview. Not that everyone is a Christian, but there are certain principles, Judeo-Christian worldview that is generally accepted and embraced in that town. Things like the golden rule, that we're going to treat others the way we want to be treated ourselves. Town B embraces those type of things. Now again, what type of behavior do you get in town B? Well, generally speaking, you have people that that treat one another kindly, that, that don't cross the lines. You have less crime. You have less drug addiction and all this kind of stuff. Families generally stay together uh, more frequently. Now, again, what would be the response of government to town B? Well, it needs to be less involved because you have in town B people who are self-governing their own lives and therefore it is possible for limited state government. Listen, it is impossible, impossible, to have limited government in a secular society. By definition, secular society demands more government intervention. And the more we become secular in America, the more we become hostile towards faith and people of faith, the more we kick God out of the public square in America, the bigger and more intrusive of necessity government becomes. And it is for that reason our founders understood that religion and morality are indispensable supports. They understood that our constitution of limited government was written for a moral and religious people and that our system is totally inadequate for the government of any other. Now, I just really believe it's important for us, therefore, to come to days like this, Religious Freedom Day, and that we not only acknowledge the importance of religious freedom, by the way, this is our first freedom, uh, the first of the Bill of Rights, uh, and it is our first freedom for a very specific reason. It is our first because it is an indispensable part of our governmental system, we must have moral and religious people capable of self-governing their lives in order to have limited state and federal government. So I would just encourage you to take on to uh, personally some of the, the things that we've been able to discuss on this podcast and, and spread it. This whole concept of separation of church and state is an erroneous belief that has come to mean the exact opposite of what Thomas Jefferson wrote to that group of Danbury Baptists in Connecticut. He was ensuring them that government would never interfere with their religious lives and their free exercise of religious expression in the public square. But today we have come to understand that, at least largely within our culture, to understand separation of church and state to the extent that we now are seeing people say, if you hold religious beliefs, you cannot be involved in the public square or in politics. That is exactly the opposite of what Thomas Jefferson wrote about. So today, let me just encourage you, Religious Freedom Day, to understand the importance of religious freedom in our entire structure and system of government, and understand that without this, everything we hold dear crumbles. Well folks, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. It's always an honor to have you on board. If you enjoyed the program, again, I'd encourage you as always to rate, subscribe, and review this podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. And for more information about Freedom Caucus, or more content, You can always follow along on Facebook.com slash Freedom Caucus and on Twitter at Freedom Caucus. Until next time, hope you have a fantastic remainder of your day. We'll see you next time.